You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway, Travel Department and Doro Phones for making this podcast possible. Hello and welcome to Take Two. I'm Mike Murphy and I'm delighted to welcome you to a new series of podcasts about books. I'm with John Banville and uh, it's a loose format, as I have mentioned before. For each podcast, I'm suggesting a book for John to read and he's recommending one for me. And then we will invite John to discuss a short story, a book of poems or a piece, a literary piece that he feels has been undeservedly sidelined or ignored in recent times. We're starting today with John's choice. We started with mine in the last podcast, but we're starting with John's choice, which is The Last September by Elizabeth Bowen. May I ask you why you've chosen this one, John? Well, first of all, it's a very beautiful book. Uh, If Elizabeth Bowen had been a man, she would be far more famous than she is. I think she's one of the major writers of the 20th century. Uh, This was, I don't think it was her first book, but it was the one that she loved most. She wrote it published when she was 29, which means she wrote it when she was 27, 28. Uh, it shows none of the marks of uh, uh, a writer starting out. She's, she's fully fledged in this, and it's, it's, it's masterly, absolutely masterly. People say, and I suppose I would have to agree, that the hand of Henry James falls a little heavily on the prose style, but it's not late Henry James style. It has that sparkle that James had in, in The Portrait of a Lady in those, those middle period books. Um, it's delightful. It's violent in a way that only Elizabeth Bowen could do it. You hardly notice the violence as it happens. Um, and it's about the end of a world. Uh, it is the last September for the Anglo-Irish. It's set in during the War of Independence in County Cork in a big house, very like Bowen's Court, the house she grew up in. Uh, the house is almost as much of a character as the human beings portrayed in it. Um, it is the end of a world. And I can't think of a more beautiful and lyrical celebration of the end of a world or marking of the end of the world. It's the end of the Anglo-Irish, isn't it, really? Um, I remember the quote, a quote of hers. She said, when I, when I close the door of Bowen's Court in the evening, I feel I'm shutting Ireland out. And there is that ambivalence, isn't there? She is, there are Anglo-Irish, but they, and they have a, the Anglo-Irish, they had a curious relationship with the English and they had a curious relationship with the Irish. Well, they're caught in a bind because the Irish regard them as English and the English regard them as Irish. I mean, the English think Anglo-Irish are even more hilarious than the Irish because uh, they sort of sound like them, but they don't sound like them. So they're caught, I mean, Elizabeth Bowen herself said that her... Uh, home place was a spot somewhere in the middle of the Irish Sea between Hollyhead and, and uh, Dunleary. Um, she felt equally at home in West Cork, in Dublin, in London. Uh, she was a cosmopolitan woman. Uh, she was she had a very fine, keenly honed sensibility. Uh, she had a very sharp eye. She was completely unsentimental about the world and about herself. 
And the day she left uh, Bowen's Court for the last time, her housekeeper said she drove away as if it was just any other day. And then when the local gentleman who bought the house raised it to the ground because he was only interested in the land, she said, well, at least it had a clean death. It won't grow old. Uh, so she was very brave, very tough. Uh, her father uh, had very serious nervous problems when she was young. Her mother died young. But her mother was like, you know, she, when she got the, uh, the awful news that she had inoperable cancer, she wrote to a friend of hers, I'm very happy to report to you that I shall soon be finding out what heaven is like. Um, mm. You know, you've got to give it to them. Mm. That, that, Stoic. Uh, that stoicism that yeah. they had. Yeah. Uh, they were a tough breed. Yeah. Um, and Yeats was right, they were no petty people. In the, in the story, um, actually I'll ask you just to briefly tell the story, but is, is Elizabeth Bowen Lois in the story? Is it autobiographical, do you think? Well, it's autobiographical in its intent, not in its detail. Mm. Um, Lois Farquhar is 19. Uh, she's the niece of the house, she's, she's not a daughter. The nailers are the, the people who own the house. And there isn't much of a story, there isn't much of a plot. It just, it, it, the war is taking place in the background. There are mm -hmm. British officers coming to the house. Uh, they do a lot of that, entertaining, oh, yes, the, entertaining. the local, the soldiers. Who, was, is Formoy the closest place to where, in reality, where it was? Is I would have been Formoy, I think. Formoy, so there was a, a barracks there. Yeah. And, uh, yes, the, the British officers come and they take part in tennis parties and dances and everything is fine. And as Elizabeth herself said, you know, we, our class, our people, we were so good at noticing, at not noticing. You see, the, that was a nice slip I made there because she is superb at noticing, but her people are superb at not noticing. She notices the details and sets them down. But... They're not noticing the war that's going on. Uh, there's a young, another, her, Lois's cousin is there, a young man from Oxford, who was very full of the Oxford ways. And uh, somebody says to one point, well, how do you see the situation here? And he says, oh, rolling up, I think, uh, ending, ending. And then they continue with their tea. Mm. Um, so they, end, they, ending for ending, the Anglo-Irish. Yeah, the Anglo-Irish. Yeah. I mean, the book ends with, well, maybe we shouldn't say what the book ends with, spoil it, but uh, it ends with a disaster. But it, it sort of, it rolls along in this, it's set in, you know, a very fine, balmy September. Uh, yeah. You know, the days roll past. Um, and guests arrive. Guests arrive. And, and this is, of course, huge, isn't it? That the guests arrive bringing news of the outside world. Well, it's wonderful. The Montmorencys arrive, this couple, and they're spongers, essentially. It's never said, but they are spongers. They have no home. They, they have no they, home. They've no, they they have just no home. go from house to house. Yeah, they go from house to house. But it's done so beautifully. Mm. Nobody ever mentions it. Nobody ever, you know. But it's clear to all that this is what's going on. And they stay. I mean, it's not just that they arrive in the afternoon and a bit of dinner at night. They're actually there for a couple of months, maybe. Oh, they stay and stay and stay. And yes. at one point, Mr. when you know, when it's becoming clear that they will have to go, Mr. Montmorency says to the missus, he says, I think you better get out your little gold pen and write to somebody else because we need to move on to somebody else. Uh, I suppose it was a way of living. Yeah. 
they entertained, they you know, made good conversation. Uh, Mr. Bomberanzi was a, an old flame of um, Lady Naylor and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a civilised world, but a world which behind which there's a conflagration going on. Absolutely. People are being, news is coming of, uh, well, there's a marvellous, but when the Montmorency's arrive, which is the opening of the book, uh, Sir Richard, the man of the house, says to them, anything happened on the way down? You didn't have any, didn't have any, see anybody, any trouble? What he's saying is, you, obviously you weren't stopped by, by the IRA. They said, no, 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 didn't see anything. But the IRA is, is, is a force throughout. Yeah. Although they don't really appear. But again, it's understated, isn't it? It's, it's understated, understated by Elizabeth Bond. Yeah. And, and, and but we the, do know that there's a savage war going on. We know on. there's a war going on, but also, too, there's, the, there's at one stage, um, somebody says, uh, have they borrowed the Ford car again? Uh, they, they'll keep it for a couple of nights and then they'll drop mm. it back. <laughs> so they, they steal something and then they return it. Mm. Well, I mean, look, that's how it was. I spoke to somebody, I can't remember who, who uh, was living in a big house at the time, and the IRA, IRA arrived one night and said, uh, excuse me, um, we'll we, we all get out because we, we have to burn the place down. Sorry, but... We're, but we're, we have to burn the place down. Yeah, and they did. They got out. And all the people got out, and, you know. They always shook hands at the end of it, you know. <laughs> and also they would, I mean, they were. they knew that the local grocer's son was heavily into the IRA, was actually quite dangerous and was on the run and that the local constabulary and the army were looking for him. But they had a sympathy for the boy. Oh, yes. Well, they're Irish. Yeah. I mean, this is what, you know, the, 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 the visiting Montmorency's and, and so on and the, and the soldiers, British officers, they can't understand that the nailers say, but, but we're Irish. Yes. Whereas they're assuming that you're English but you just happen to be living here. And they're saying, no, 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 we're Irish. We're just as Irish as they are. But they also, too, the, the soldier Coldhurst was in love with Lois. And Lady Naylor takes him to one side and said, you are not suitable and we, you don't have money. And basically, they needed their kith and kin to marry into money to keep them all going, didn't of they? Of course. And also, well, there was also class. I mean, the poor man, he comes from... He comes from Surrey. He came, uh, they, he came from my, Surrey, which is ghastly. Fa- it's my favourite line in the film That's when Maggie right. Smith says, uh, his people are from Surrey. Surrey, my dear. <laughs> Maggie Smith in, in the movie, uh, Fiona Shaw in the movie, a very good cast, and Maggie Smith is excellent in it, really good. Oh, Maggie's wonderful. When, uh, when they were making it, I went down one day. You and, wrote the uh, script, I should I mention, script, by the way, yeah. I wrote the script. Uh, I went down one day to see them, and they were living in the house, but they, they'd only been there for about three days when the family said, look, you have to move out to a hotel because we have a family occasion. And Maggie came down the stairs and we were all sitting and having a drink and Maggie said, I hear we have to move. Oh, God, I've already spread myself in my room like rust. <laughs> like rust. <laughs> of course, it was all planned, and the entrance was planned, you know, but it was beautifully you, you, done. You are right in what they said. The house is almost a character in its own right, isn't it? The, the yeah. big house. Yeah. And they tried to be self-sufficient, these families, didn't they? Oh, they were mostly self growing their own food. They were mostly self-sufficient. They but, were, weren't but, they? But, you know, I remember the, uh, the Pakenham family, or the Hale Pakenham Mahons, mm. in Strokestown House, 
they had a little carriage, a little railway carriage, and the Galway to Dublin train would stop at Strokestown. They would attach this carriage, which had their laundry. It would bring it across to London, it would be laundered there, and then brought back the following week. Really? They wouldn't have it done in Ireland. They wouldn't have it done in Ireland. To go back to Elizabeth Bowen, um, was she, she was caught between the two, uh, but she had a very eventful life, didn't she? I mean, she had relationships with a number of people, including O'Fuelan, Sean O'Fuelan, didn't she? With yes, so she, was, she, was, she was quite a girl, yeah. She wasn't a beauty. Uh, her longest-lasting lover said of her that she had the most beautiful back he'd ever back. come across. Her back. You know. oh. I thought it was a bit ungallant <laughs> of him to say too, this, yeah. but uh, but she was she would have been such good company. Yeah, you know, there's a wonderful story about during the war, in their uh, their house in up at Regent's Park, she was having a drinks for her friends on the balcony, and there was a, an air raid started up, and Elizabeth was going around with the tray saying, "Will you have a cocktail?" I'm terribly sorry about the noise. <laughs> Um, when she t- when she did inherit Bowen's court, I think she was. Uh, did you mention she's about thirty thirty one when she inherited yeah. Bowen's court? Did she do much entertaining? Like, did she bring the literati? Oh, she did to yeah. Bowen's court. Yeah, she, she did. She was yeah. She was she was a very good host. She uh, she she put on a good dinner. I think mm. there are lots of nice pictures of people like Iris Murdoch and O'Fallon and people there. It must have been very nice. Mm-hmm. She had to earn her living. Uh, she wasn't left any money. Uh, she, when she had a success with the novel The Heat of the Day, she at last was able to put in some bathrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the curtains in the downstairs rooms, in the big bay windows, the curtains were made from corset satin. She'd found a huge bale of corset satin in Debenhams in London, bought it cheap. <laughs> and somebody said... Somebody said, you'd never think it was corset satin, but once you know, you can't think of anything else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, do you regard it as her best book? You do? Oh, I do. I think, do. It's, I think it's the finest. I think certainly from a lyrical, poetic aspect, uh, yes, it's, it, it's certainly her finest achievement. She had a tendency later on towards the melodramatic which I think marred the books, you know, mm. sort of, they, they end with murders and things, which don't really fit in. I think she, I think she felt she would have to throw in a bit of sex and violence, you know, to, mm. to make them popular. You are right in what you said earlier on about the violence, which is quite savage in part, is completely understated and is yeah. almost on the sidelines. Yes, there's a scene at the mill where, where uh, somebody gets shot in the hand and... Uh, we don't even know the details. We don't know mm. who did the shooting or what the consequences were. So it's, it's again, it's that thing of, you know, not... It's in the wings. Not noticing, not noticing. Yeah, not know. noticing. All right, thank you very much. That is The Last September by Elizabeth Bowen. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport, or visit the home of the Titanic? Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook. Designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. 
Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text. One that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. And welcome back. Um, John Banville, you're going to talk now about a story called The Ballad of the Sad Café, written by Carson McCullers. Um, You're attaching a certain importance to it. You do think it's a special story. Is it Carson McCullers or is it the story itself that interests you so much? Well, it's fascinating. One of the great interests of reading is reading texts at different phases of your life. I guess I read this story when I was a teenager and I was completely bowled over by it. I started immediately to write the ballad of some other sad cafe uh, in imitation. Um, reading it now, when I'm in the, as Corvidal wonderfully said, in the springtime of my senescence, um, <laughs> I read it differently. Uh, I can see the joints, I can see how it's done. I think it is a masterpiece. Uh, it is strange without straining after strangeness. It's just a a portrait of a small town in the deep south of America. Carson McCullers knew all about that. She was born in a small town, Columbus, Georgia. Um, She had a skewed attitude to the world. She suffered ill health all her life. I think she had a first stroke when she was about 21. So she was always in ill health. Uh, She only lived to be 50. Her sexuality was extremely ambiguous. Um, She married uh, not very successfully, as the character in The Battle of the Sad Café does. Uh, But her real loves were were women. Somebody told me that uh, when she was at Yaddo, the writer's retreat in America, she fell in love with the novelist Catherine Ann Porter. She used to sleep outside her door every night. And Catherine Ann Porter, who was very elegant, sort of New Yorker lady, you know, she would open the door and just quietly step over her so as not to wake her. Oh, my know? goodness. Uh, so it was a strange really, yeah. life, um, a short life. I suspect it was a pretty good life. But her stories, uh, like the stories and novels of so many Southerners, is... It's draped with melancholy, the way the trees down there are draped yeah. with moss, you know. Um, Where did this come in her in her career? Was this one of her early works or did it come? Because the, the ones she's best known for probably 
are The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and Reflections in a Golden Eye. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter was her first book, I think. This was part of a book of short stories called The Ballad of Sad Café, and this was a longer uh, one of them. So it's not a, it's not a, a, a beginning work. Uh, it's, it's, it's a mature work. But it's told... I mean, it is a ballad. Tell us the story of it. Well, the story of it is... It's so strange and so... It's told in such a matter-of-fact way that you forget how strange it is as you're reading it. There's a, a general store owned in this small town, owned by Miss Amelia. She's six foot two, I think, and, you know, built to match. Uh, very awkward. Um, she had been married briefly for about a few days to a ne'er-do-well called Marvin Macy. Uh, one night, a hunchback turns up. Now, Marvin's gone, isn't that Marvin right? is gone. Marvin's gone. Oh, yeah, I mean, she, she, she gets rid of him. She gets rid yeah. of him. He's the, Marvin Macy was very good-looking, played the guitar, you know, was a good old boy. But obviously, when he, on the wedding night, she obviously got a surprise because she came down and slept um, by, in the kitchen, wouldn't have anything to do with him, and eventually drove him away and broke his heart. Uh, now, you just have to accept these things, you know. Marvin Macy doesn't seem the kind of character whose heart would be broken by Miss Amelia, six foot two, uh, backwards girl. But anyway, uh, he goes off. One night, hunchback arrives, a dwarf uh, called Cousin Lyman. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know what hunchbacks and dwarves are called nowadays, but in the story, he's referred to as the hunchback and the dwarf, okay? Uh, Cousin Lyman. Cousin Lyman's in very bad shape when he arrives. He's very sad and he's weepy. And, but Miss Amelia falls in love with him. And she pampers him. She tricks him out in these wonderful outfits. And he essentially takes over. Yeah, she he takes becomes, him in. Yeah, she he, takes becomes, him the... he becomes the master of the, of, the, of the house. And he starts up the cafe. And at night, people come, and at first, it's just a few people coming, but then it becomes a fully-fledged cafe. That, that She turns the store into a cafe. And then, of course, Marvin Macy comes back, and Cousin Lyman falls in love with Martin Macy, Marvin Macy. And this breaks Cousin Melia's heart, and she challenges Marvin Macy to a fight, fist fight. To a fist fight. And they have, you know, it's all prepared. The whole town is there. It takes place in, inside the, the store. And uh, Miss Amelia is winning. And this is for the hand of Cousin Lyman, isn't it? So to speak. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he, he, he sets this up. But he distracts uh, Miss Amelia and Marvin trips her and wins the fight. And it breaks her heart. Uh, Marvin Macy and Cousin Lyman go off together. And, uh, you know, various stories are come back, you know, that Marvin Macy had sold Cousin Lyman to a, a travelling fair, you know. Uh, so nobody comes out of it very well. And it is one of the saddest and one of the most... I, I can't find the word for it. It's not amusing, it's not funny. No. But it is... It's quirky, isn't it? It's just, it's, it's irresistible. Yeah. It's irresistible. And, and when you start reading it, you know, it's just because she does it in this completely unemphatic way, this is like somebody sitting down. I mean, 
I know these, this part of the world a little bit. And I've been in situations where people sit down and say, I'll just tell you a story now. But uh, is this girl, yeah. she, she lived in the next town, she's called Cousin Amelia, you know. And it's just, it's totally in that way. And you see, it starts off with, if you go to the town of X, yes. there is a, an old dilapidated general store that with an old yes. sign of a cafe on yes. it. And occasionally you'll see the face of an extremely old, white-faced woman at the yeah. window. Yeah. And, and that's how it starts, and then it's the flashback. And it ends very strangely. There's a separate section at the end of a few pages called The Twelve Mortal Men. And the Twelve Mortal Men are a chain gang. And they're singing songs and they, they kind of retell the story in, 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 in minor form. It's a very strange way, a very risky way to end the story. But somehow it works. Do you regard it as her best piece of work, The Ballad of the Sand Café? I think it's certainly the most successfully artistically achieved. Yeah. It's it's all of a piece. It's like a it's like a Fabergé egg. You know, you couldn't add to it, you couldn't subtract from it. It's one of those classic mm. things that that seems to have generated itself. Okay. So is her work worth reading now or is it would you consider it passé old-fashioned? Well, it's out of fashion now, but that doesn't mean anything, you know. All kinds of masterpieces yeah. out of fashion. Uh, she's certainly worth reading. Um, she's probably she was she had a huge reputation while she lived. I'm not sure I would put her quite that high, but she's very very high in the pantheon of, of, of American authors. Good, thank you very much indeed. Right, that's uh, Carson McCullers and the Ballad of the Sad Cafe. Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook, designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic. Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. Well, our final book 
today uh, with John Banville and myself is um, one that I'm so delighted to be featuring because the author is and has been for many years a hero of mine. I never had the pleasure of meeting him, mind you, but uh, I have admired his writing so much. He's Robert Hughes, the Australian cultural critic and indeed historian as well. Uh, He's the late Robert Hughes and uh, the book is called The Spectacle of Skill. It's selected writings of Robert Hughes, so there are extracts from The Shock of the New, The Fatal Shore, Goya and a number of others. Um, But John, I... I'd just like to know your reaction to the fact that, one, we chose it, and I'd love to know what you think of Robert Hughes, too. Oh, Robert Hughes is one of my heroes as well. I I loved him. I loved his refusal to be politically correct, as they used to say. I can imagine what he would make of the... What do they call it now? The cancel culture? The cancel culture. what he would do with that. I wish his voice were still here to speak up. Uh, A wonderful critic, uh, wonderfully bullient, uh, unapologetic quintessentially Australian. I love Australia, I love Australian people, uh, and he was, uh, as I say, uh, one of their, their finest exports. And he made no apology, did he, for what he was about to say? <laughs> oh, he made no apology. I mean, look, I, here's a, a favourite passage. In fact, it's so good that the publishers put it on the, the dust jacket of the, of, the, of, of the collection. I'll just read it. I am completely an elitist. In an the elitist. Cultural, hmm? <laughs> an elitist. An elitist. I am completely an elitist in the cultural, but emphatically not the social sense. I prefer the good to the bad, the articulate to the mumbling, the aesthetically developed to the merely primitive, and full to partial consciousness. I love the spectacle of skill, whether it's an expert gardener at work or a wood carpenter chopping dovetails. I would rather watch a great tennis player than a mediocre one. Consequently, most of the human race doesn't matter much to me outside the normal and necessary frame of courtesy and the obligation to respect human rights. I see no reason to squirm around apologising for this. I am, after all, a cultural critic, and my main job is to distinguish the good from the second rate. Isn't that wonderful? Absolutely unapologetic, isn't it? You see, in our time now, he would be required to apologise for that. He would. Which is, you know, we're living in a mad time. You're quite right, he would. That wouldn't be acceptable. What is a critic to do? I mean, you know, people talk about, you know, oh, the pretentiousness of the artist. And I always say to them, what about the pretentiousness of the the people who who wins a race? You know, he comes first. Yeah. The guy who comes second comes second. The guy who comes third comes third. Nobody says, oh, they're equally good. You know, this is, uh, this, is, this, is not, this is not right, this is unfair, you know, you should treat them all equally. The guy won. The guy won. <laughs> um, as you read that piece, I'm, I'm going to pick, and because we're talking about how unapologetic he was and how direct he was and how savage he could be, let's be brutally honest, he could be. But in the, when he was writing the um, column, the uh, art critic column for Time magazine, he, he took some people apart, notably, this is what I wanted to quote, Julian Schnabel. I remember years ago seeing the work of Julian Schnabel. I think he came over here for Rusk. And Schnabel did these giant canvases and he stuck a whole lot of gunge on them and then he stuck plates, kitchen Broke, plates, plates, yeah. plates on, on the gunge. And you're kind of, you'd had to say to yourself, is this for real? Anyway, 
Here's what he uh, Schnabel said something nasty about Robert Hughes, and Hughes decided I'll I'll write a critique about his book and his show. That one of the things he says is Schnabel's work is to painting what Stallone's is to acting, a lurching display of oily pectorals. <laughs> I mean, and then at the end of it, he's talking about a show, uh, both a show and uh, a book. And he, at the end of the review of Schnabel, when he tears the guy to bits, he finishes up with um, he finishes up with the strongest symbol embedded in this conjuncture of show and book is their timing. Did the Whitney Museum and Random House really mean to celebrate Thanksgiving by serving up this turkey? I mean, it's it's just savage. Yeah, and you are also, right. He would have to apologise publicly for that. But also, he is a wonderful stylist. Yeah. yeah, that is very very good writing. Yeah, it's muscular and it's it's loud sometimes, but it is very very good and it goes to the point every time. Nobody could skewer a, 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 a charlatan the way Robert Hughes could. And it's not just his critiques and his acerbic tone. Sometimes the guy was also a historian of note. I mean, the fatal shore that he wrote about about the discovery of Australia and the British government sending all these prisoners who became the foundation of the of the Australian state. It's a masterpiece. The a fatal shore book, is wonderful book, very moving, very. I I I think that and his introduction for so many people to twentieth century art, the shock of the new. Those two are seminal expositions. I think. And then when he went to be uh, art critic on Time magazine, so he was patronised by the, the arts community. You know, the poor chap obviously needs to make a living. He, went for, he said, this is 20 million readers, you know. Do, do you want to write for seven people? He said, you know, I want to write good stuff for 20 million people, which is what he did. Yeah. I used to write the odd thing for the Daily Mail now, and then people said to me, yeah, writing for the Daily Mail? I said, why shouldn't there be good writing in the Daily Mail, as in the Irish Times or the London Times or anywhere else? Yeah, he was... I don't know what the word... He certainly wasn't a populist, but he was, no, he was no elitist except in the sense that he was talking like about... He was Donald Trump. He was a disruptor. He was not in the least <laughs> like Donald Trump. He was no Donald Trump. Um, as a matter of fact, as you say about the, 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 the arts... At that time, the visual arts in the United States were effectively owned and dominated by Clement Greenberg, who was the the art critic uh, du jour. I think he was with the New York Times. I may be wrong, but he his one of his first comments was, "How can they take this guy seriously, Clement Greenberg?" I mean, that was a courageous thing. Yes, he and he took Clement Greenberg on yes. and said, "This is old hat. I'm going to change the style." Yeah. No, he was, I mean, he, he really did clear out the stables. Uh, he certainly made a good effort at it. Art in those days was, I mean, the big shift had happened after the war when Paris and Europe had been the centre of the art world and it shifted to America. And that was largely the work yeah. of Greenberg and the other guy, Rosenberg, the two Bergs. Um, and it was very vigorous. Uh, it was abstract expressionism. People like Jackson Pollock, uh, they were making a new kind of art. It, not all of it was, was great, not all of it has lasted by any means, but it was exciting. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, fascism had been destroyed, 
freedom was allowed. You could do anything. You could do anything. You could pour pots of paint over a large canvas, as Jackson Pollock did, and you could make beautiful things out of it. And Robert Hughes was very much part of that. And then uh, later on, I mean, he was a man of the 60s. But the art world was changing because there was very little money in art in those days. And then the big money moved in, in the 70s and the 80s. And we've arrived at a stage now where you have these, do you know about these art warehouses? And always art warehouses. There are some in Switzerland, some in the south of France. Uh, Air-conditioned, practically bomb-proof. It's where the rich and the criminals and so on put their, their artworks. Yeah. Nobody ever sees them. They just sit there in mm. semi-darkness. And they're increasing in value. Increasing in value, and they're going up from 800 million. It's just, it's, it's absolutely insane. Know, and it's, it's dreadful. And know, it's going to kill art. And you know, Hughes said at a certain stage, he said, I believe it can't go any further that the, the extraordinary paying million, a, mil, a, a million for a painting. And he actually said it, it, it has now reached its limit. He was wrong. He was wrong. It went on and on to 150 million for a Van Gogh or yeah. whatever, whatever else. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like tulip mania in, in Holland in the mm. 17th century, except that uh, these works will last in these art factories, uh, art warehouses, where nobody will ever see them. Mm. This is, you know, this is absolutely disgraceful. When you say he was an intrinsically Australian, there were contemporaries of his, like Clive James, I suppose, would have been. Yeah. You know, there were a few of them that were very, and they, they became very popular. And they, they were all punchy and kind of strong-willed, the people who did come out of it. But the great strength they had, you see, was that they sounded like Australians that you meet in, you know, Earl's Court, you know. Yeah. But they had done their homework. Hughes was immensely well read. He, he knew his art. He knew it from the ground up. Like Clive, Clive James. Clive James is yeah, Clive an amazing James. linguist. A friend of mine met him on the train one day and Clive was reading Tacitus in Latin, of course. In Latin? On the train. No. You know? was he so they, they knew their stuff. And they were able to come in as a fresh breeze and they were maybe looked down on because of their accents and because of the way they behaved, but they knew their they stuff. They knew their stuff. He, um, Hughes, also introduced Lucian Freud to the United States. And of course, Freud is now regarded as possibly one of the great, well, of the last hundred years, one of the great artists. And he makes a good point. He says, when he's talking about buying paintings when he was young, you know, cheap paintings, but he said there's a, there's a, uh, an ethical problem in a, in a critic buying pictures. And there is when you think about it. You know, if you champion an artist and you own mm. a, dozen of his pictures, a dozen of his pictures, you know, people could say, well, you know, he wasn't selling so well, but now that you've championed him, prices have tripled. And what can the critic say except, well, you know... So, so what did he good. do? So, well, he, he, well, he, he, he didn't, didn't buy, buy after that, picture. did he? Not? No, no. Well, he, you know... He certainly didn't buy in order to, to, to inflate the prices. And the prices have inflated to yeah. absurd levels. I can't levels. tell you how impressed I was when I read about The Shock of the New, which I do regard as one of the great. It's a kind of, you have Kenneth Clark's civilization, and then you have uh, Robert Hughes's Shock of the New. I can't tell you how impressed I was when I read that he did the intercamera pieces off the cuff. There mm. was no script. I mean, to have that kind of knowledge is stunning. Well, he loved to talk, and he could 
I remember I had dinner with him one evening years ago, and he could speak in sentences, you know. He wasn't going, you know, um, like uh, he spoke in sentences, mm. long rolling sentences with that wonderful Australian accent and that booming voice and that mm. absolute self-confidence, that certitude. Because you don't meet in many people, you know, and it can be, it can be extremely off-putting yeah. in many people. It wasn't in him. He had a terrible motor accident in Western Australia and he was hospitalised and unconscious for a very long time, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He, he kept running into things. I mean, he kept, you know, he kept having accidents. Yeah. And the last one pretty well killed him, I think. But the night I had dinner with him, we were having dinner in a very fancy Boston hotel and he was wearing a tie with a naked blonde painted on it, you know. It Politically a... incorrect to the last degree. Yeah. Yeah. I love that about him. D you, you read The, Fate, the Fatal Shore. Um, it was a superb book, wasn't it, yeah. in, in terms yeah. of... What it's a superb portrait of the, of the, the, the founding of a, of a nation. You know? How did Australia react to him? Were, were they proud of him? Oh, they were proud of him. But, of course, poor old Australia, you know. When you're there, they say, you know, they all leave. Yeah. And then they're half a world away, so they don't come back. Yeah. Last time I was leaving Australia years ago, uh, my... Uh, publicity woman from the publishing house. She's, I said, well, you know, I'll see you again soon. She looked me in the eye and said, you'll never come back. I said, why? And I realized after she stopped saying, you're too old, you know. Really? You, yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's an it's immense such a journey. Long, it's such it's an a immense long journey. way to go, isn't it? Um, can I go back to architecture again? He also put a great deal of store on the connection between architecture and politics. And he dwelt upon Albert Speer, Hitler's architect, and the kind of architecture that he built, which directly reflected the philosophy of the Nazis, this grandiose, great, intimidating um, architecture. Oh, yeah, Albert Speer was one of the great scoundrels who got away. He, yeah. when the, uh, during the Vansay Conference, when they developed the, the, when they decided that they would destroy the Jews, he was out. Uh, I was never, shameless, absolutely shameless. Yeah, absolutely. But you see, he was so good looking and so charming and so plausible. Mm. The rest of them he weren't. He kind of got away with it. Yeah. Oh, he got away with it. Um, you enjoyed the book. I did. Look, this is a superb book. I cannot recommend this highly yeah. enough. And I would recommend. Go online and buy the Knopf hardback edition. It's a beautiful piece of bookmaking. It's, a, it's, it's a, be a beautiful thing to hold in your hand. That's, that's a very really good you know, suggestion. It's only, it's only 10 or $12 or something yeah. uh, for a, you know, for a, what is a, a really beautiful book. But every, beautiful object. every page is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's just stimulating yeah. to read his work all the way through. Yeah. We, I mean, we've left out so much. There's a whole lot of his part, chunks of his memoir in it, oh, yeah. his, his tragic relationship with his son. Um, there are a lot of... The, and the, his book on Goya, we didn't even talk about. Uh, there's just so much in it. I, it, it. I think it's... I'm so pleased that you... you I, I did know that you were a fan of Robert Hughes's, but I'm so pleased that you have you encountered this book. Yeah, I did. Okay. Both, the, both the writing and the book itself. I think, you know, as we come to the end of this, we, we should emphasise what beautiful objects books are. They are so... They sit in your hand, you know, they're... Yeah. They, they, they're friendly, they, they even smell nice. I remember I used to have, a, when I was book editor in the Irish Times, 
had a wonderful woman reviewing books for me and she, she wrote a review saying, her first review said how important it was, the physical book yes. for a child. She said, you know, they love the look of it and the smell of it and the taste of it, you know, because children, of course, chew books. Uh, the Spectacle of Skill, um, and it is by Robert Hughes, selected writings of Robert Hughes. And John Banville, thank you so much once again. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you.